and here is how you would know the level of of risk of suicide. So you go from asking, you know, are, are you thinking about ending your life? Uh, how would you be planning to do that? When are you planning to do that? So knowing if there's a plan. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning and richness of spirit, the life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers, athletes and social justice campaigners with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. Part of living a good life is to stay mentally healthy. And my guest today is somebody who is an expert in staying mentally well. Deborah Rickwood's a professor of psychology at the University of Canberra and the chief scientific advisor to Headspace, uh, the National Youth Mental Health Foundation. She's a fellow of the Australian Psychological Society and somebody who has churned out an extraordinary amount of research. In just 2015 and 2016, her bio suggests she churned out 19 academic articles. So she's somebody who is productive on the research front, but also on the translational front. She's engaged in the the policy debate and While we won't be speaking directly about politics or policy today, she brings that wealth of informed understanding to the conversation about mental health. Deborah, thanks for joining us in the Good Life podcast today. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So what got you into working on mental health originally? Uh, Of all the things that uh, a bright young woman could choose to to specialise in, uh, why mental health? Part of the reason for that was um, our personal experiences. I think if you talk to anybody for long enough, you'll find everybody has some experience of, of mental ill health and the impact of mental health on their life. I had, while, while I was at school, certainly had friends suicide. I had my own issues getting through being a teenager and knew that lots of my friends and family did as well. I, I then wasn't quite sure what to do after I finished school mm. and I thought of being a vet and, and then there was also psychology. But one of the things that really I, – I then started doing some work as a youth worker and I spent quite a lot of time working as a youth worker and, and really cared about, about young people and getting young people on track. And doing that at, at that time, which was quite a long time ago now – it made me aware of, of how important the social environment and people's context and the opportunities that they have, mm. as well as their own individual resilience, has and made me aware that we didn't know very much back then, which is why I then went on to union and basically went down a research path, but, but a very applied research path because I like to to do research that then you can see it's it's going to make a difference, mm, mm. you know, quite quickly in people's lives. Where were you working as a youth worker? I worked here in Canberra. I worked um, for some refuges and for Richmond Fellowship. 
for a while. Yep. So you were dealing with people who were sleeping rough or people who'd, uh, who'd just... Uh, were you in those vans going out to the community that yeah, you sometimes Yeah, no, I, w- I worked mostly with young people in refuges. Okay. So who, for various reasons, um, you know, ended up in a refuge and, and were really at a pretty low point in their life. Did you find that many of those people had uh, uh, serious mental mental health challenges that they were battling as well? Many of them did. They certainly... Uh, we didn't recognise those types of issues back then very mm. well, but looking back, you would definitely see many of them were anxious, many of them were depressed, many, many of them were using substances, even at very young ages. But they also came from from backgrounds where things hadn't worked out mm. well mm. for them. So there was a lot of things in their social environment that also impacted on their well-being. Were you unusual among your classmates studying psychology and having had that, that coalface experience of, uh, of working as a youth worker? Uh, probably from, yeah, I, th- I think many people who go into psychology and those related disciplines often do because they've, they've had some sort of experience, done some sort of volunteer work. So, so I don't think I was all that un- unusual, although very few people probably started off in youth work mm. who ended up you know having the sort of career trajectory that I've had yes. but I, I think it was a good start yeah and when did you decide you wanted to be a researcher I partly went through doors that opened and I I definitely didn't set out to be a researcher originally I probably wanted to change the world be a be a clinical psych figure out how how you could help people but um decided that we we had a lot to learn Mm. and and then basically you know opportunities arose i i got really interested in research and in doing applied research so kept kept going down that path and still going down it (laughs) yes do you feel do you feel that uh what you learn has applicability for your own life, for your your own sense of mental well-being? Are you still at this stage uh, learning things from the literature that make you think, oh, I could do that and I'd feel calmer and happier about the uh, about the world if I did? Oh, absolutely. From um, you know, some of my own research, or the, though not necessarily the research that I do myself, which tends to be a little more on the pointy end, but what I read mm. and am very interested in in, I mean, I often study mental ill health and so have a great understanding of misery. Yes. <laughs> but the flip side of that is that, that you do understand well-being also. I, I wish, I really wish um, I knew what I know now 30 years ago when I was younger and the things that I put in place in my life now would have, I would have really benefited from a long time ago. Can, can you expand on that? What, yeah, what, what some sorts of, those, of things do you, well, do you most wish Well, some of the things that we, we now know are um, and, and that we have a strong scientific evidence base for that, that, that we now know are very good for your well-being. And, and some of that I, I did do. I um, learned to meditate a very long time ago when it was, you know, pretty out there. And it 
various points in my life, particularly when things were difficult, I, I did meditate. Now, of course, we know that mindfulness and learning, which is, is a bit different to meditation, or it's, a, it's mm. a type of meditation, but learning to be mindful and practicing being mindful is, is an essential skill that we should all learn and would really impact um, on everybody's well-being. The other thing, uh, you know, now knowing the importance of sleep and really how sleep truly impacts on your well-being, the important of, importance of gut nutrition, which is starting to emerge. And, and some of this science, you know, when we think about it, it makes sense from what we've known personally, mm. but we're just starting to get the science to support it. And the other thing I've started doing, you know, very late in life is is doing some yoga, which is hugely beneficial. And, you, you know, implementing these things that uh, that now that there is a lot of evidence behind that they that they're helpful. So take me on to the practicalities, particularly around sleep, because I feel like sleep's one of those things where we pretty much all feel like it would be good if we got more of it, but uh, we're not sure how to uh, change our routines in order to, to get the sleep we need. How do we do that in a practical sense? I, I think the first thing is, is recognising how important sleep is and making it a priority. And often, you know, we're so busy and rushing around and, you know, you know you need to sleep and you know you don't feel all that great when you don't sleep well, but prioritising it so that you do have good what we call sleep hygiene, which is a terrible term. Oh, I love it. I think it's great. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and just doesn't fit. But uh, but uh, without becoming – and here you, you, you need to have good habits and – practice good habits, but w without becoming neurotic, I guess, about it. One of the strange things about getting good sleep is you have to have set up good habits to enable you to sleep well, but not really obsess and be worried about sleep. Mm. The more you worry mm. about yourself sleeping, the less you'll sleep. I think we've all been there. Yes. But tell me about some of those habits. What? Uh... Well, some things uh, we know getting away from your computer and from bright lights and, and the back lighting a couple of hours before you're going to want to go to sleep. So letting yourself sort of calm down is, is important to switch off, not not expect, oh, I can work or watch horror movies or whatever it is and then suddenly go to sleep. Having a, a, a bit of a routine, so w whatever that means for you to have a drink a shower whatever it is that's your relaxation routine having you know a darkened cool room with you know low lighting the right temperature and just those things that are that are conducive to sleep and then not going going to bed going to sleep having a relaxation routine they're not getting upset if you don't go to sleep mm. and and I guess just um yeah, mainly having a routine, but not being – we can't all stick to a routine all the time. So yes. if you become obsessive, that, that will then just become another stressor for you. But go, going to bed at a similar time, getting up at a similar time, you know, we do know for most of us, unless you have a sleep disorder, in which case you 
can require some, you know, some professional yes. help. Yes. But but making it a priority, knowing what works for you, and putting some things in place. Yeah, I've discovered uh, to my horror, I'd put too many things into my sleep routine. So uh, uh, I'd had uh, I'd had this idea that before going to bed, I would do my sit ups. I'd do my, uh, the stretches my physio had told me I needed to do. I'd do a bit of time in the foam roller. Uh, I'd get into my pyjamas. I'd clean my teeth. I'd floss my teeth. And I, I sort of discovered that I had inadvertently built a half-hour sleep routine around. And sometimes I'd stay up later because I just didn't want to go, didn't want to begin that whole routine. <laughs> so doing some of that stuff a little bit earlier and then being ready yeah. just to fall into bed seemed to help a bit. Uh, what about uh, managing email, which is sort of a, a bane of many, many, many of our lives in terms of thinking clearly? It is, and that's something I'm very bad at. You can get a bit addicted to your email and it becomes a, a terrible distraction as well. So checking it umpteen times mm. a day and checking it as soon as you get up in the morning. I mean, wh- why do that to yourself as soon as you get out of bed? And... Here, you know, I I don't follow my own advice very well, but people who manage email well, I've heard one of the things you should do is set aside some time to check it, say two or three times a day, check it, deal with things, and then stay away from it the rest of the day. Because it it is a distraction and and it's basically, you know, allowing whatever random other people want from you impacting mm. on your life where to to be focused and be productive you you need to set aside time where you're doing the tasks that you choose to do but the email is just letting the rest of the world into your head all the time so quarantining email is is a discipline that myself and and everybody else <laughs> it'd be good to cultivate that yes yes uh, and what about social media, both from your perspective, but also through your headspace lens? Uh, what 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 advice do you give to young people on managing social media, for whom it seems to be often the leading source of stress? Yeah, so, social media is 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 very complex and uh, both a real benefit and something that technology has, has brought into our lives and into young people's lives that can can be a real benefit but it can also be quite a curse. It can be a benefit in in terms, you know, obviously of connecting young people hmm. and enabling them to be connected and is, is especially valuable for connecting young people who might find that you know, like-minded young people in in their immediate interpersonal environment aren't aren't available. For for example, if you were you know a young gay guy in a remote community, right, right. you might not find very many people in your community who you can connect with. Yes. So through social media and social networks, you can find there's a whole world out there of people where you can be accepted, where you can belong, and that kind of connection is is hugely valuable, including you know young people who are chronically ill or who have disabilities, who are housebound. That these ways of belonging are, are very very valuable. Mm. But then there's the flip side of the constant. Um, 24-7 identity management, the kind of social comparison, the social referencing, the opportunities for for cyberbullying. And 
and there is a growing body of research. I mean, and we sort of think that that often young people who are well connected in social media are also well connected in in their face to face life, and there's not a lot of difference between you know young people seamlessly go between their what happens in technology and what happens face to face. But there is a growing body of research showing that young people who spend a lot of time engaged in social media and that that isn't very much balanced by other aspects of their lives, that, that this is not conducive to their well-being. And we, again, need to switch it off and, and not, not spend our whole time being distracted by it, being involved in social comparisons and, um, and again, being kind of buffeted around by whatever's out there rather mm. than, you know, what, what you might be more carefully choosing to have in your life. So like me, you've got uh, three children, although I think yours are a little more grown up than mine. Uh, how did you help them manage their, uh, navigate their way through so- social media? Not well, always. And, and with the age of my children, we, we did sort of span that period of it really becoming a phenomena. Mm. So with my with my eldest daughter, it wasn't quite so much an issue for her. With with the younger two, very very much an issue. And we we were a little bit I mean I did try to do the knowing what their passwords were. One of the reasons I'm familiar with social media, you need to stalk your children. You basically you know, being online, understanding the different types of technology helps you to communicate with them mm. about it, see what's happening. But um, so they're all Facebook friends of their mum. They are. Yeah, they, it's a bit hard to get rid of your mum. It's kind of <laughs> obvious if, if they do that. But they have learned to, particularly my my youngest. They they have other ways. They go underground now. There are things that they do online that. That, um, that I can't see. And I, th- I think one of the saddest things with social media and also just the way young people use phones these days, you, you will rarely see young people, and I mean, you'll really, rarely see me, talking on a phone. Mm, people mm. text and text back and forward and, and you'll see, like I see my kids, they're sitting there watching telly and just constant texting either on social media or texting. But that means in the family, the parents don't know who the friends are, don't know who the friendship groups are. Mm. You, you don't know who's ringing up because you never answer the phone as the parent. You, you don't see all this communication that's going on, which means that you have to work a lot harder to to know what's going on in, in your children's lives because they have this whole other world, social world enabled by technology that, that you can be completely excluded from mm, if, if mm. you don't find a way to engage in it. Yes, it's so different. I, I think think back to, uh, you know, my parents knew that I was uh, interested in a girl at school when uh, suddenly I started having hour-long phone conversations and, and there was always, always just a limit to how far I could stretch the phone cord away because we didn't have a cordless phone, so they could pretty much listen in to, uh, to those conversations yeah. in a way that... I won't be able to monitor my little boys. No, it's stage. a very, very different world, and um, and quite a worry when, especially when you don't know that they've started having sort of romantic relationships, which 
can happen very young and happens through Facebook and the other social media where and you you as a parent can have no idea at all and and ver- and young people you know when they're preteens and that they they you know their feelings are very intense very strong they're they're very vulnerable to that but um, if you don't know that it's going on and well, well you have to kind of bring up those conversations before something would trigger it by, mm. oh, there's suddenly girls ringing up and, and they're hiding behind the kitchen door to have the conversations. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, now, we're obviously delving into a huge area of research, but I do want to kind of um, just quickly get your kind of high-level thoughts on a couple of other sources of stress in, in modern modern life. Um, relationship breakups... Uh, how do you uh, and how does how does Headspace think about the best way of providing support to people going through relationship breakups or dealing with it yourself? Relationship breakups are, are very important and and especially important for young people who you know just because of their life experience those types of things loom larger than for older people who've had more experience they know that they'll get through things that that life goes on and and relationships again like with things like tumblr and social media and and the changing of relationships the nature of relationships is is very complex these days and what what the expectations are so I think um, dealing with, you know, we don't have a good science around dealing with relationship breakups, which, which is kind of funny given how important it is, but mm. that not many people directly study that or, or have a whole lot of scientific literature around it. Here I think um, the sort of family supports and whoever, you need to take relationship breakups seriously, particularly for young people because... This can sometimes be the last straw, something that really triggers a young person being very distressed. And I suppose just social support, talking to people, distracting them, Mm. getting them to understand that this too will pass, distraction, getting out, getting, getting back into doing other things, pleasurable activities with other people is probably the best way of doing it. Ways to not ruminate. Yes. On what has been, which um, a lot of our our music culture <laughs> encourages, sort of wallowing in the in the broken heart. You know, it's probably all right to do that a little bit, but then um, you know to move on, get out there, be active, yes. get out and about, yes. and do things. Yeah. Uh, bereavement. Again, yeah, um, bereavement obviously is is a significant blow to people's well-being and losses through bereavement are a huge risk factor for people's mental health. People you know need to understand that uh, it this is traumatic, that it's upsetting, that you know we have some research about stages of grief but people don't tend to go through those necessarily in any sort of linear way. That's interesting. Yeah, some people move through things more quickly, some some people don't. People uh, deal with grief in different ways. 
One thing that we do know is usually it's helpful for other people to talk about the bereaved person, mm. so to not be frightened about talking about the person. Most, most of us feel better when we, we feel closer to someone. We like talking ab- about them, sharing our experiences with them. So, so to be open, to encourage talking, talking about them, allow people time, understand that, that people can be very distressed and very distressed for, for quite a while and there's no magic formula, oh, by X amount of time you should have got over mm, it. Mm. There does, like, like where you move from grief and bereavement then into depression is a line that's a bit hard to determine, but some, some people do become depressed, particularly with, with a trigger like that. And when you need professional support to deal with additional issues is, is, is challenging and difficult to tell. But I suppose if, if somebody's very distressed, if, if they're not happy, then you know, seeking out professional support and going just to have a chat to somebody to see what else might be able to be done to, to help you recover is, can be useful as well. Addiction, uh, you've done work on drugs and alcohol and gambling. Yes, again, there's a there's a lot for us to learn, and and that's a Pandora's box, understanding addiction and how we best deal with that. There are a lot of different substances to be addicted to, including now you know computer games, and how you deal with those does depend a bit on the the substance and the individual. In in general, though, I guess I come from a, a, a background and our understanding is that prohibition doesn't work, that usually some sort of harm minimisation type of approach is, is how, how you deal with these things, that, that people understanding why people are using whatever it is mm, to mm. cope or whatever the reasons they are, but trying to minimise the harms that are caused by that behaviour to the person and their family while they either mature out of it, which people do, out mm. of using some substances, or get help to work their way out of it is is the best approach for us to take. Is it helpful or unhelpful to tell a friend, oh, I think you're, you're addicted to such and such? Does that labelling... Uh, is it more likely to help someone de- deal with the problem or is it more likely to make them feel stigmatised and uh, retreat? I think you'd want to be very careful of the language that you used. I think most people would not cope very well with someone saying, oh, I think you're addicted to to a substance. And if, if the person already has concerns that they might find that confronting and get defensive if if they if they're not aware that they have a problem they they are then likely to shut down so taking an approach where you you'd need to if if you were concerned coming at it a bit more sideways Mm. so asking people is behaving in that way 
you know, is that getting you where you want in life? So being a, a, a bit softer rather rather yes. than confronting the person, which, which is easier said than done. And and often it is true having having other people be concerned uh, about your behaviour is one of the catalysts for people starting to want to change. So it's not that people shouldn't say anything or pretend everything's okay if things aren't okay, but trying to come at it in in a, in a in in some sort of way of, of encouraging the person to be aware of themselves and to own their own problems so they don't get defensive and hostile and just angry at you yes. is is probably you know one of the best ways to attempt to approach and and sort of broach those issues well i guess that opens up that broader question deborah as to what is it that makes a good counselor uh, what are the what are the qualities that that you see in people where you think oh yes you've you'll you'll be you'll be able to uh, to to really make a difference here this is one thing that's that some of my research shows my, my research has primarily been on help seeking behavior and that there's some really simple things that we hear time and time and time again and I, I do most of my work with young people so it's it's particularly evident for young people but I think it's probably true across the lifespan uh, a good counselor is somebody who's non-judgmental who is really accepting of the person and that someone feels that they're not being judged, that, that they can open up to this person, be themselves and, and trust that, that that person has their, their well-being at heart. But, but being open and non-judgmental seems to be really, really key. Part of that, I guess, being empathetic, being, you know, being able to be understanding of somebody else's world and reflect that back to them. But, but it's really being non-judgmental, mm. which you think is simple, but it, it's not. And, and we make judgments all the time and we convey them in, in ways, you know, even with you know, just micro kind of um, facial expressions and and people who are sensitive and young people in particular are very very attuned to somebody judging that mm. they're you know mm. they're not coping or they're not behaving the way they should or people aren't approving of what they're doing so so i think it's that being really be able to leave your judgments behind yes it, it's interesting so much of techniques such as active listening for example seem almost trivial when you when, when you explain them but turn out to be quite hard to do in a, in a conversation in which you're much more concerned about saying your piece than taking the time to reflect back to somebody that you've, you've heard what they've said to you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you need to be genuine. You know, pe- people know if, you, if you're acting as well. So you can, you can practice those, you know, we call them in counselling micro skills. But if someone, if someone isn't genuine and, and they've just learned the skills and are there trotting them out, mm. most people are pretty attuned to that and, and they, they can sense that, that the person isn't, isn't genuine for them. So, so people who go into counselling you know, have to be good at how, the, how they present themselves and convey themselves, but there does need to be people who are really empathetic and compassionate and can understand where somebody else who's often very different you know has mm. a very different mm. life course to them where, where they've come from 
What about uh, dealing with somebody who does seem to have more serious mental health concerns? Um, you know, in my own, my own life, I, I know my friends and I uh, feel deeply dismayed that none of us managed to identify that a, a classmate of ours, Andrew McIntosh, was uh, suffering from severe depression and he uh, simply took his life one weekend. Uh, and that uh, it's interesting for me now talking to some people in the in the in the mental health space who say that in circumstances like that, it's okay to use the S word. It's okay to say, uh, "Mate, are you are you contemplating suicide?" Um, is that is that your view as as well? That that's that's an appropriate uh, inter- intervention in instances in which you think someone might actually be looking to harm themselves. Definitely. And and here is where a lot of research now has been done that our our understanding is that it, it is it is okay to ask, that, that that we should ask if we have concerns. And it and it used to be very much that it was the S word and we, we could barely even do research about it because really? oh yeah. yeah, ethics committees sort of ten years ago and they still can be quite concerning. That, that if you ask questions about suicide and do research and use the suicide word, that you're somehow putting that idea in people's minds. And, th- and that's definitely not the case. And we now, you know, there's a lot of mental health first aid approaches and, and, and in the world, if you're concerned, to ask. And, and to feel that it's okay to ask, that you're not going to plant an idea there that, wasn't already there and people I mean not always but very often if you ask people will tell you that that they are um, feeling suicide and then I guess you do need to know what to do because mm. that's something quite confronting then to be left holding so understanding the level of suicide risk and knowing where to, to get some support so that you then are the one left with with dealing with that on your own. So what do you do? Do you call Lifeline on their behalf or what's the what's the best best response if someone says yes to, to that question about contemplating suicide? Yeah, well I guess depending on the level of risk, I mean one of the things I would say if 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 you're with someone and they they have admitted to you that they're thinking of suicide, the the best evidence at the moment for preventing suicide is removing means. So uh, also asking, and, and here is how you would know the level of, of risk of suicide. So you go from asking, you know, are, are you thinking about ending your life? Uh, how would you be planning to do that? When are you planning to do that? So knowing if there's a plan. Mm. Then looking at what, what the means are and, if, and, and removing means if you can. I mean, obviously that's not always possible, but if possible, to get rid of the means. Mm. Then then there is, well, what, what sort of help do you need to to um, to bring in? I mean, calling Lifeline, Lifeline's always available, is, is one issue, and that, that would be one thing that's available all the time. If somebody was already in contact with services, you might be able to find their caseworker, 
if if you're dealing with a young person and you're also a young person getting if they're close to one of their parents get getting the parents involved or or another adult mm. getting somebody else there who you know who's a competent adult who who can then take it further yes yeah, yeah. and how do you how do you help yourself uh, in instances in which your role is to assist others whether that's a uh, professional counselor who needs to go home and replenish themselves in the evening or um, an amateur who is suddenly put in a position of needing to spend a lot of time helping somebody else through a, through a life crisis uh, what should they then do to to replenish themselves afterwards yeah well self care of people who you know who are in these situations is is really important and um, and these people can be very highly at risk as well you know the carers are at risk the the first thing around that is again um, social support and social relationships they, they are the one key thing mm. that's always essential to our well-being where and even if you're an introvert we're social beings and and a level of social support and being able to debrief disclose have a confidant some someone you can talk to so you you can get that social interaction that that's probably the first yep. key thing and the other issues are just general self-care about your own well-being so making sure that 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 you sleep properly that you eat properly that you exercise that you do whatever it is you know to you have meaningful activities that you get out and about that you maintain your social relationships looking after yourself and you know it's a it's a the analogy you get in the plane you know put on your own oxygen mask before you help somebody else yes. you're you're no good to anybody if you're drowning yes. you know drowning people don't save um, other drowning people so but but um, talking to other people ha- having mm. some you don't need many of them, but a couple of close friends. And we touched a little bit on some of the aspects of uh, encouraging mental well-being with uh, as a parent. But are there things that uh, tips that you would give to to parents? Um, I'm thinking around the sort of stress points of uh, of exams and 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 friendships, but also just in general about sort of inculcating a sense of resilience and uh, the the right the right level of uh, of, of adventurousness in, uh, in in the little people we love there's there's obviously lots and lots that parents can do and 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 you do need to start young because you it, it's very difficult particularly once young people get more vulnerable get to puberty start to you know, go towards the peers and be more exposed to the more negative things in life. The more you've put things in place when they're easier to get along with, when they're happy little kids, is is really important. So you, you don't just suddenly start doing things when things start to go wrong. So mm. have open relationships, have um, put the boundaries around social media and electronic devices very early on and maintain those boundaries know that it's important that social relationships are important there's some research and many people saying you know some of the simplest things that are to have 
everybody have dinner together. Yes. And, you know, that that's just a way of, you know, making sure the family are connecting, that, that you're having a nutritious meal. It's not people just throwing a bunch of takeaway at each other, sitting down, putting the devices away, an opportunity to talk. So ha- having those sorts of family connections, doing things together as a family, knowing, um, know, knowing what your kids are up to, being involved in in what they're up to, guiding them mm, to towards. Mm. But this, it's important to say, you know, the flip side, we talk now of, what do they call it? Helicopter and lawnmower parents who are so involved and engaged in their children that they're trying to prevent any distress and that they're super achievers and every opportunity goes their way. That is not conducive to healthy children either. So either being neglectful and, you know, not being involved to being over-involved are, are not ideal. Kids do need to bump up against adversity. They do need to figure out how to problem solve. The world is not always going to be a kind place and your parents aren't always going to be there to smooth the way. So having a few scrapes and bumps, you know, these are the things that make you resilient. So letting kids sort some things out themselves without you sorting everything out is is also important, which then is really challenging. Which, which bits do you really focus on and which bits do you let go through to the keeper yes. every now and yes. then? And you just have to, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> do the best you can. So long as the, you know there's no perfect parent, I guess. No, that, uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, Deborah, let me ask you a few final questions to wrap up. What advice would you give to your teenage self? Oh, I wish my teenage self would have listened to any advice I would have given them. (laughs) That is a great point. (laughs) Yeah, but um, I, I would have told my teenage self to lighten up, to not be so negative so miserable not to worry to have a bit more fun not not to worry so much figure it out a way and uh, when are you most happy i i really like being i mean i love canberra but i really like being by the sea so just walking by the sea is something and and a lot of people find some some form of nature is is really helpful. I also find, like at the moment in Canberra, watching, being out in nature, watching the leaves turn. Yes. Things like that, that you know, just moments like that, I, I think is when I kind of experience what I would call, call happiness. Brief and fleeting, but being in the moment, appreciating something, you know, not, not thinking about the past or the future or your career or anything like that, but just ap- appreciating where you are in the moment. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Things I've started doing recently, uh, you know, only in a while, I've I've started doing a bit of yoga and I start every day with just a little 10-minute yoga um, and I'm not flexible, you know, I'm hopeless at it, but I find that you know, I don't know what it is about it, the just the movements and and having a little bit of space in the day. I find that really helps. I've started to get a bit um, thing about your gut health. 
I reckon, you know, prebiotics, probiotics, thinking about what you eat in terms of your gut health, I've really noticed that makes mm. a difference to me. And I do try to um, practice, you know, do some meditation, do some mindfulness. When I get caught up, you know, look, you have to teach yourself not to worry and not obsess and live in the moment and think, you know, this too shall pass. And that's a little mantra that I often say to myself when I know I'm getting, and, and I am, I, I can get quite intense, you know. I, you know, I think being intense and passionate can be a good thing, but, but you do have to know how to rein it in and, mm. and not, mm. not let your emotions get out of control. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Oh, many. Um, so uh, staying in bed late... And I eat it's not the yoga of... that's keeping you in bed. No, 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 no I don't no, want to do no, that no. 10 minutes of yeah. yoga. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. The yoga is, is a positive way of getting out of bed. It gives me something to look forward to. to whereas hear. dragging, I find getting out of bed, I do not bounce out of bed and I could stay in bed for quite a long time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and finally, what person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Oh, there are a lot of people. But I, but I have a... Um, a couple of people in my life who who I've I call the good fairies of my life. What who, a lovely phrase. Yeah, they they're people who've um, been there at times who who've really had a great deal of faith in me when, you know, maybe they shouldn't have. And who provided opportunities for me and and followed through with that. And and I can count them on one hand. But they and, and they were people who were really generous people, who, you know, who were non-judgmental, who were generous, who gave you more than one opportunity, and you know, gave me the sense, yeah, I would be all right. I had something to offer and opened some doors, which I was then able to go through. And if those doors hadn't opened, my life could have gone a very different way. So I think looking for the, you know, I think we all hopefully have some good fairies in our life. Or can be good fairies for others. Exactly. So I mean, yes. yeah, paying it forward. Yes. I, I think that's one of the things that um, I really enjoy now. And I spent this morning at uh, University of Canberra, had graduation, and I had a PhD student, you know, I've spent five years working with her and being on the other side, being in a position where I can give back to people and see their lives flourish mm. is enormously gratifying. Yes, being a good mentor to some, yeah. someone is, is one of the most satisfying things I've been able to do in this job. Uh, Professor Deborah Rickwood, thank you for taking the time today to talk about mental well-being, mental health and how all of us can be a little more mentally healthy and thereby live a, a good life. Great. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you like this podcast, please let your friends know on your favourite social media app. And if you are interested in politics or policy, you might want to check out my Andrew Lee Speeches and Conversations podcast, including a recent speech on reducing inequality. Next week, I'll be back with a new guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.